Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell. Okay, so today I wanted to tackle the concept of the universal destination of goods. And that's kind of a esoteric line maybe, but I just want to read the definition from Wikipedia. And it says, the universal destination of goods is an idea in Catholic theology by which the Catholic Church professes that the goods of creation are destined for humankind as a whole, but also recognizes the individual right to private property. And so if you go into uh, the catechism, starting with paragraph 2401, they're discussing the seventh commandment, which is you shall not steal. And so there's a discussion in there, obviously, since we're talking about property rights and the universal destination of goods. So maybe there's this tension between these two things that goods are for the goods of the earth were created for everyone, but we also have a right to private property. And so how does that work out? How does, how do we understand theft and things like that in that context? Um, and it talks a little bit about the, the idea being that, you know, we want to have solidarity sort of, you know, within humanity. We want to, we want to have solid, we want to foster solidarity between, you know, people in a community or whatever. So Russ and Jason, what, what are y'all's... And that uh, could be across faiths, you're saying the solidarity? Do you well, think, or just, is that implied or not necessarily? Or Well, sure. I mean, so... Catholics want to keep it to themselves? <laughs> I, think, I think the idea is that you have to have property rights and you have to recognize the universal destination of goods to foster solidarity. Because, you know, the, the idea would be that, you know, we don't just want to have this sort of revolutionary socialist communism thing where everybody tries to hold everything in common. Right. Because then, you know, we can't have, we wouldn't be able to draw the lines around families and communities like we do now that create this, that foster this concept of solidarity, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, maybe you and I have something in common because we both uh, live in Ottawa or we both work at the same place. And so those, those sort of, I guess, to, to take from our uh, last weekend at Creighton, the uh, sort of mutual fellow feeling that comes out of that. Mm-hmm is a good thing. And so we want to foster that by, you know, being able to, you know, you have your land or your property and I have mine, but we also owe it to our friends or, you know, those in our community to help them. Yeah. And I, I think um, <clears throat> you made me think how a capitalist system with well-defined property rights allows Christians to use property of non-believers right? Through what, trade. Oh, through trade. Okay. Well, because yeah. If they, <laughs> and to me, I, I've said this before in previous podcasts, I really believe that the, the market system is, is divine, that the invisible hand that Adam Smith talks about is actually God's hand in, in guiding create, creation or allowing us a tool, I should say, to help guide creation among believers and non-believers. So if there's a resource that believers need for some reason or some purpose, some divine calling, vocation that they have, they have the opportunity to bid for that, to use it for that calling 
even if the owner of that resource doesn't agree with their vocation or they're a non-believer or they believe in whatever. Uh, they believe in the devil. Right. So, <laughs> and so, they worship the devil or whatever. Right, right. It so to me, it, it's, uh, it's an interesting way that we can cope with a fallen world and sin that, that'll help us to carry out our vocations. And so we, in a sense don't all have to agree that the universal destination is, we don't all have to be in harmony on that thought for us to be able to live in this world, what Luther would call the left-hand kingdom, right, of all the institutions and stuff that we have in the world we live to carry out God's word. So it's kind of a nice concept in the sense that it's an ideal, but also has a practical component is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's something that we can rally around as Christians. Right. That's our belief, but we don't need to convince other people necessarily that they have to believe what we do to carry out our own vocations. But we might have to get our checkbooks out for it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right? Because yep. if we if we need that resource, then we still have to compete with non-believers who might have a different use for that resource in whatever they're choosing to pursue. Right. And then on the flip side of that, there's also the sort of moral obligation to help those in need. And so it's, you know, getting out your checkbook, you've also got to get it out uh, yeah. to help people when, you know, it's hard to be hard to be part of the community if you're not contributing when you can. Right. Right. Yeah, right. right. And so that kind of brings up this idea of uh, the gleaning perhaps on our calling. So I pulled up uh, Leviticus uh, 19.9. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So that's a little Old Testament action of as we're in the marketplace or in the production of goods and services, there was a command by the Lord to, to think about leaving some behind. And what's different here is it, it isn't the production side, right? It's not sell your good in the market and then give 10% of it. or right. yeah. give. <clears throat> So it was, and so I think this is to me, my interpretation would be one of those practical areas where, it just happened to be in that time and place, maybe the easiest thing. You had sojourners, you had people that were, you know, wandering. Maybe the Lord would have put different words in today, dropped them in today's world. Although I think, you know, that's dangerous to think about it that way. I think we should try to push for how that might apply in today's world. You know, we have extra things at the factory and maybe we, I don't know if we, leave them outside of the fence of the, the factory fence. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, how, much do you, how much do you stretch these things? So I think there's a, there's a principle there that's, I think we have to use our prudence and judgment in each time and space to, to see how we should apply what the intent of that was. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of sort of interesting economic concepts you can bring into that. So, you know, we're talking about sort of an agrarian society that had, had, had agricultural technology, but that was sort of pretty much it right. Um, right? in terms of capital and stuff like that. Yeah. But 
so you're, you know, and also people just sort of walking around. So they would, they would be able to get a couple handfuls of grain or whatever. Um, and then that was relatively normal sustenance for people, but they also, us. they also had to work for it. I think in another reading, this might have been for the least of these, a biblical answer to poverty from the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. I can put that in the show notes. But by leaving the gleanings, you weren't delivering them to the poor where they lived, right? So sure. they knew that they, if they wanted some food, there was potentially some at the corners of the land, but they had to physically walk there, gather them. Maybe it's grain that needs to be converted into food. You know, it wasn't ready to eat yet. Sure. So there was work involved with that. So there might be, I, th I think in that literature, at least from that side, there's a little, little element of keeping the dignity of work and um, how that can be maybe a a different way to serve the poor rather than just direct handouts and delivering prepared meals straight to their, to their home, which that might be appropriate in different ways too. Right. right? But it, it is a little bit different. But yeah. And so I think it touches on a few things. So, you know, you mentioned leaving stuff outside the factory and it's like, well, you know, if the factory is making suspension parts for a car and it's kind of <laughs> like, well, you know, <laughs> what do I need this for? You know, right. but, but so then on the other hand, like you said, this is basically giving them sort of a basic ingredient, yeah. not not a finished product. Yeah. And so, I mean, today, you know, we, we think about almsgiving and giving people cash and stuff like that. And it's like, well, you know, one of the big concerns people have is, well, they're just going to go spend it on, you know, alcohol or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's like, well, maybe it does make sense given the culture and given the type of technology that we have and all that sort of thing. Maybe it's best to just go grab a sandwich for them and hand them the sandwich right. then give them 20 bucks or whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> but it does make you think if, I guess if, if, if you felt compelled to follow that principle a little bit, maybe giving flour and sugar and things that actually would force you to have to make the food yourself. Right. You know, yeah. puts a little bit of work in it. And, and again, that yeah. might not be appropriate given some circumstances, but in others yeah. we can look at the Bible and use it as a, a little bit of direction that, well, that's what was going on there. But you know what? You know what? That actually makes me think of one of our previous episodes when we spoke with uh, Jeff Dorfman at uh -huh. the University of Georgia, and I, I, I'm pretty sure in that conversation we brought up the the proposed change that Trump had to right. to the uh, <laughs> to, to the the SNAP program, the food stamp program was well. Instead of that, we're just going to have sort of like a really basic blue apron kind of thing where we're just going to mm -hmm. you know send a bag of food to people and and you know maybe it's you know, raw carrots and stuff and like that. And they'll just figure yeah. out what, you know, how to make something out of it. Yeah. Which I mean, to, to an extent, I guess WIC is in between those two things because WIC is certificates or vouchers for specific food items, specifically the most generic or cheaper, you know, versions of them. Yeah. And so there are some restrictions, but there's also, mm -hmm. you get a little bit of uh, leeway in terms of where you buy it or whatever. And then this other topic that we've had at least a couple different talks on the idea of universal basic income. Maybe we just give them all cash. And right. then yeah. now we've got not much work going on there. You can do whatever you want. And yeah. uh, in terms of what you spend that money on, whether it's food or whether it's other things, and that could be prepared food or raw food or otherwise. So definitely lots of, uh, lots of things to consider. And I think having a relationship with the, user love thy neighbor as thyself and and you know keep an eye out for people that are close to you the principle of subsidy subsidiarity subsidy subsidy 
subsidiarity. Okay, we might need to edit that part. No, that's fine. I can I can stumble on my words too. But uh, looking out for people that are close to you and knowing what they need. They might need a hundred bucks. They might need a sandwich. They yeah. might need flour and sugar. I don't know. But that's something that our federal government I don't think is real good at. And I think the direction we've head, headed with having them too involved with specifics of families right. isn't the best place to be. I think there's a, a better way to do it by empowering local agencies, local nonprofits to have that relationship, leave the government there for the, for the impersonal cash side. So I think moving that direction with policy would be a, would be a plus. So, all right, well, that looks like a good place to take a break, and then we'll, uh, we'll pick it up from there afterwards. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing faith and economics in action. If you or a high school student you know is looking for a college like that, contact Levi or Russ today. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Courtney Institute for updates on our activities and research. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at GourtneyInstitute.org. So we're back to continue our discussion on the concept of the universal destination of goods. And Russ, you uh, you had some uh, you found some other stuff to yeah. I wanted to at. kind of take a couple couple looks at different things. So when I think universal destination of goods, I think back to the Bible quote, which I won't be able to figure out, and I'm not going to Google for it. But the rain falls on both the believers and non-believers, yeah. right? So just and the unjust. Yeah, yeah, just and unjust. Thank you. So we have that from an operating ongoing standpoint. And so, but when I think universal destination, I'm like, where are we going? So I'm thinking about the second coming of Christ and uh, we're all together. Uh, Lutherans and Catholics put aside their disputes and, and we all like, oh, I guess I had you on that, on that one. But, you know, and we kind of learn everything <laughs> about uh, some of our mishaps and decisions, but if we ultimately had Christ in our heart at the time we croaked, then we're probably going to go upstairs rather than downstairs and uh, live on this earth embodied in, in heaven. <clears throat> and uh, we've had a few discussions on this that I'd like to pull forward on, you know, 
what does that heaven look like? Can we snap our fingers and have a plate of food or do we actually have to work for it? So what does living in abundance mean when, when we get to heaven? I claim that we're still going to have decisions, we're still going to have time, and we're still going to have comparative advantage where some people are good at some things and some people are better at other things and we're going to have trade. And so I tend to think that the difference between a lot of the way life looks today without sin in, the, in heaven and the final destination, they're not going to be a lot different in the sense that everything's upside down, like you don't recognize it. <clears throat> I think a lot about the earth we will recognize in heaven and we'll live our lives differently in abundance, but we'll still have a lot of things that we recognize. It's not like we're going to have superpowers or something that all of a sudden, uh, there's no, nothing in the Bible that I remember that says, uh, other than getting to live forever, uh, that you're going to have some unbelievable strength to be able to lift up cars with a fingertip or something like that. So, so I think that's kind of a fun thing to think about. That's a little bit of an aside. So where I was going with that is this universal destination of goods, God empowered us to be good stewards of these resources to hopefully get more people to understand what a full life with Christ would, would look like. And so I think that's where we need to recognize as Christians that all of these resources are for everybody, but we can use them to serve God and hopefully uh, get more people to better understand what a life with Christ would look like. So that said, I found this paper that we'll put in the show notes that sounded pretty interesting that discusses the differences between Catholicism, Lutheranism, and uh, Reformed Protestant uh, beliefs. And so I've got a quote here that I'll read. Catholic subsidiarity and Reformed Protestant individualism and volunteerism both attribute a negative role to the state. So Levi, can you kind of explain on that? I'm going to read a little bit more later, but I thought let's just stop there because uh, individualism and volunteerism, so that's a little bit more on the Protestant side perhaps or agreed upon traditionally. We've got the Protestant work ethic where uh, the United States seemed to come over and there's a little bit more with individuals and, you know, Luther was big to say, you don't have to go through the priest, you can go direct to God. So it kind of empowered the individual a little bit with the Reformation. And, but, but what's this negative role to the state? Yeah, so the, in, in a philosophical, political philosophy sense, a negative role or a negative right is something that you have the right, uh, for instance, if you have a negative right, uh, then that means you have the right to be, for something not to be done to you. So a negative right to life would mean that you have the right mm -hmm. to, the, the state will keep other people from killing you, not that the state will sustain you in every way, Right. But it would just so they're keep, not going to play an active role. Right. 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 So it's going to be a it, well, and I think more than yeah, I, I, At, yeah. How does it's just more way. the more the point of like active is a policeman coming over and protecting yeah, sure, you or right. shooting a bad guy or whatever. That's kind of active, but that's not the kind of yeah what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's more it's more the idea that it's not it's not supposed to sustain your life. It's just supposed to defend your life from attack by someone yeah. else. And so you know, a negative role in the sense of poverty would simply mean that that it would create conditions so that you could be, you could pull yourself out of poverty or you could be pulled out of poverty by voluntary by means. Yeah, right. Yeah. By others by, volunteering to do it. But right. The state itself, not claiming some role to have to provide that like the social. And it's really this, 
the, to compare to the social safety net that we have today, that we have the state playing a positive role. You're down on your luck. You can go get some food and snap and wick and whatever from the state. So we've, the state has taken a more positive role. So here we are back in the 1700s and below, or 1500s and earlier, where the idea of the state was to kind of stay out of the way and let people live let voluntary charity happen to help the poor, allow individuals to have their own property rights, was starting to build, of course, back in those days, we're still kings and queens and princes where they, the property rights was they owned everything. And so the uh, American experiment really didn't take hold here for another uh, roughly 200 years. If we get to 1776 in the United States, where we start to really empower the individual to make decisions. So, that's kind of a good place to think about that. So it, it was saying here that the Catholics and the Lutheran, even though Lutherans were a little more individual, both attribute a negative role to the state. In other words, no, the So re- reformed, you said Lutheran, reformed. And reformed, yeah. I'm sorry, reformed Protestants, yes. So they were saying both, both of those two religions attribute a negative role to the state, that that's the proper role of the state is to stay out of things and except for protecting individual property rights. So, in countries under Catholic or Calvinist dominance, poor relief was not secularized as early and as comprehensively as in the Lutheran countries, and private charity, families, and mutual help remained important sources of support. Poor relief officials were mainly representatives of the clergy. Countries under Lutheran dominance, in contrast, secularized church property in the course of the Reformation and assigned a positive role to the state very early on. In accordance with Lutheran poor law, these countries established tax-based and centralized systems of poor relief. Poor relief officials were laymen and employed by secular authorities. So here we've got the Lutherans leading the way, which this almost pains me to say it because I I don't, but I I think there is a proper role. So it pains me just for ridiculous reasons mostly, but because I'm not anti having the state involved in some capacity. I just think in today's day and age, the state has gone too far. I, I think there's a, sure. a better way to back off on where we are with the state and allow private charities and churches and other people to play a bigger role in poor relief. And so it's kind of like, where's the pendulum, right? So right. <laughs> at this point in time, state was at zero and Lutherans kind of led the charge, uh, which I think was appropriate at that time. So, and that's the thing that, kind of interests me a little bit is I, I want to read this um, more fully because, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that, that the author uses the term voluntarism. And I mean, at least today, I mean, that, that would be associated with sort of just complete, complete libertarianism, you know, where there is no state or it's completely minimized. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously I saw the word libertarian, by the way, when I was scanning the text, oh, okay. so I'm excited right. to read this too. We might yeah. just end up getting a podcast out of this. We'll, maybe we'll have to invite whoever this author is. Right. So. Yeah. This was literally uh, listeners after a Google search. Um, right. what, what did I, I think I Googled Lutheran, Lutherans and the universal destination of goods. Right. And so, I mean, we're talking about the 1500s where things were slightly different back then. But, you know, I guess the one thing I would say on the, on the Catholic notes, I can't speak to the Reformed Protestant. No, I, don't, I don't know much about that. But obviously, I think we, if we look at more recent Catholic Church documents, uh, you know, socialism is, is roundly condemned over and over and over in the Catholic social encyclicals, but capitalism is condemned in its excesses, but not in its 
uh, sort of innate, not not innately. So I mean, there's even a line in um, one of Pope Pius's I mean, about that. Would I think maybe you'd agree with this, but maybe you wouldn't. But isn't it likely that capitalism is the the wrong word that's maybe even being used with excesses or something that it's really individual choices that led to excesses or maybe it's consumerism right or but something. but the idea is that you that if the political order is established around the concept of capitalism then it then explicitly allows for all those things to happen okay. right and so and again this is where I come in and say like well maybe I think on the Catholic side there is a positive role to the state because number one and I'll, and I'll put this lecture up I think it's a great lecture by philosopher I mention all the time on this podcast, Edward Fazer. Um, yeah. He's talking about, he's talking to an audience of libertarians and he's saying, no, the, the, at least the Catholic perspective or a biblical perspective would say that the state does have a, it does have rights. It does have a positive role that, you know, the state is something beyond uh, just the sum of its parts. You uh -huh. know, the nation is not just a group of people within certain boundaries. There, there's more to it. It's its own entity. Before we go too far, give your two cents on capitalism. To me, it's the most commonly misunderstood. Um, it, it enrages some people, perhaps, <laughs> yeah. so that they can't yeah. even, you know, listen to what it is. But I mean, I, we've got we've kind of done this so many times. But I, th I think with new listeners coming on, it's always good to just you know throw out our two cents. Yeah. So, what's your two cents on capitalism, Levi? Yeah. So I think the I think there are some errors with the way people understand it. And I think a lot of times it gets confused with sort of modern state corporatism, which, <clears throat> which yeah. I think is what you're saying. So like capitalism purely, and maybe in, in a form that it can't actually exist in reality, but it's just this idea that, you know, there's a certain level of property rights that everyone is guaranteed and it's all well-defined property. Rights. Right. Yeah. And it's all about sort of, trade, you know, mutually beneficial trade and stuff like that. At the individual level. Right. Right. Yeah. So we, we, individuals are the kind of, kind of the unit of measurement, if you will. Right. And that the uh, collective ownership is minimized to the extent possible. So right. we might not be able to minimize national defense, for instance, because of the public goods problem. But for the most part, we empower individuals with ownership rather than state owned ownership right. of stuff. Sure. And so I think it's when you get into the details that you start to see some of these divergences and people start, um, you know, sort of complaining about certain policies you get along with something we typically consider a capitalist economy. So, you know, something like antitrust, yeah. you know, how is that supposed to work? Well, you know, it sounds like a positive role for the government trying to enforce property rights and keep, keep entities from getting too big. And so if you don't enforce antitrust laws, does that mean it's corporatist and, you know, the state is propping up corporations? Yeah. Um, you know, so we're kind of getting to the rules of the game, right? In, in terms sure. of what, what are the laws on the books um, that we have? And I think the principle of the law is to support competition. And that's where the antitrust laws come in. It's like if a market's not competitive and somebody's able to garner too much power or, or in one particular area, then the government allows a right to it. Jason, what do you think? Uh, there was, uh, I did that article just the other day about the Disney. Yeah. And how they bought. Uh, I haven't had a chance uh, to read that one yet. Yeah. yeah they, they, it'll be uh, on the blog. Yeah. They mm -hmm. had a portion of Fox. They bought a significant portion of Fox. Uh -huh. And um, there were other countries of these antitrust um, regulators who, who were very concerned about uh, Disney having so much of like the sports channels having Fox Sports oh. because they oh, their yeah. soccer teams are on those channels and so they mm. made a push to have Disney get rid of 
like sell off the oh. Fox Sports because they didn't want Disney to have full control over soccer matches. And these are other countries who oh, are yeah. kind of presenting it. And the same thing happened with uh, they owned a really big portion of National Geographic. And uh, U.S. antitrust regulators were like, no, that's, that's not going to fly. So Disney can only have 50% of it. Hmm. <laughs> so, like, all of these things happened because everybody thought Disney was getting too big. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm one to think that, you know, monopolies don't exist, for the most part, into the long run unless government's involved. And that government's kind of sanctioned or somehow protected through cronyist, which is not capitalism, by the way. So the distinction we've made on, on cronyism of big business and big government playing kissy face with each other, um, that's not capitalism. And that's kind of the corporatist uh, uh, type thought, I think, is that those businesses can get so big and start garnering favors. So, um yeah, so then, Capital, uh, any last thoughts there? So we got the rules of game. We got uh, a court system that's good, right? A police system. So that's part of the rules of the state. And um, we yeah. allow people to kind of do what they think is best for themselves. And whether that's pursuing uh, the work of God and the vocation that they have or pursuing a vocation that they don't know was ordained by God because they don't have a belief. And that's the, I think, some of the... Uh, rain that falls on both the just and the unjust is that we can get the fruits of, of their labor as well and how we uh, make our choices. All right, so if that looks like a wrap, on behalf of the Gorton Institute, we appreciate you all listening, and uh, if you feel compelled to do so, we'd love to have a donation or so thrown our way, but otherwise we love doing this and putting out the content, so we'll probably keep doing it. I shouldn't say that because that means uh, I'm just inviting free riders, aren't I? There you go, so, you are. But yeah. that's all right. That's right. Uh, thanks for listening, and be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm.